Hear the word of the Lord spoken to us from Isaiah 8. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called... Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Ah, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> nice. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is good to be back. You know, it was a great sabbatical. I went not realizing how tired I really was. Um, I think my emotional tank was pretty empty. And I didn't have a lot to give you all in terms of energy and creativity. And, but it was exactly what I needed. Mainly, I spent a lot of time with the Lord because I knew I needed more of Him. And he really replenished me, rejuvenated me, restored me. And, uh, and I did go with the sense, Lord, I'm open to whatever you have for me. I want to hear from you. But what he kept saying is, no, I want to restore you so, because I've called you to this place, this people, this congregation, to all of you, that we might continue this journey together 
of learning to love God more and love others more. So let's do this together, shall we? Let's do. I'm excited to be here. I really am. (laughs) Glad to be back. One of the other great excitements of life is when a couple waits nine months or so and waits for a baby to be born and then it's finally born. It's a time, no matter how painful or difficult the labor, finally comes the joy of when the baby is born. And you can't wait if you go through that as a parent, right, to tell the good news. A baby's been born. (laughs) I'm going to just show up. Our birth announcement from Joshua's birth. (laughs) We'd made this up ahead of time. You know, you can do a lot more on the computer these days. But uh, we made him up. We could not wait till he was born. And then on the back, we could write all the details of his birth and especially his name. We wanted the world to know that Joshua David had been born. True with all my kids, Jeremy, Rollin, Jacqueline, Ruth, Jordan, Joseph. And you've experienced that, too, if you've had kids. There's a joy about that. Because you want to let people know a little bit about this baby that's been born. Well, as we look at this passage together in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, one of the things that struck me this time as I studied it is that Isaiah 9 is essentially God's birth announcement of his son. He is so excited (laughs) that his son is going to be born, that Jesus is going to come and enter our world, that he gives us his birth announcement, only he is so excited. He does it over 700 years before he's even born. (laughs) God was so thrilled that he was sending his son and he wanted us to know his son. And he gives us some wonderful details about him in this birth announcement so that we can know who he really is. Why? Because the Father knows that the key to life, the key to what we all long for, is in a relationship with his son. And knowing him as he really is, not as we imagine him to be, but as he really is, as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father our Prince of Peace. So pray with me, and let's look at this passage again together. Lord, when we think about your Father heart in sending your Son for us and the joy that you had in sharing with the world this birth, may we enter into your heart of joy today and in this Christmas season as we celebrate with you, Father, And we can do this, we can share this, we can come into your presence only in Jesus' name. And so we pray. Amen. So first I want to lay out our situation at the end of chapter 8. Because our situation is kind of a mess. (laughs) And it's a reminder that when God comes, when he shows up, he shows up in the midst of our mess. God doesn't just come when we have our act together and we've cleaned up our life and all that. No, he enters right in the midst of the very mess of our lives. So Isaiah is describing this life of Israel at this point. It's around 725 BC when he's writing this, probably when he gives this prophecy. And 
And so the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, has been around about 300 years, actually both kingdoms, the north and the south kingdom, around 300 years. And in the north, there had really been no godly kings. Things are morally, politically, economically, socially falling apart. So when he describes in verse 21 this mess, he's describing life apart with God because they had decided to try to live life without God. They had forgotten God. So that's why it says they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. They've forgotten God, and so the result is they're in despair, and they're left hungry, starving. They, there's something lacking in their hearts and in their souls. They're dissatisfied. They're distressed. And we know it's because they've forgotten God, because God is the only one that can fill our lives with what we long for. As I saw in my sabbatical, you got to fill life with him. There's nothing else that can satisfy the depths of our souls and our hearts like him. But they'd forgotten God. And so the result is, if you forget God, then you begin to look to life around you to fill the needs of your heart. And the result is you're always frustrated and dissatisfied. And you end up doing what they did, which was curse their leaders. Why aren't you coming through and making my life better? And cursing God. Because their only relationship with God is one in which he needs to make their lives better here on earth. And because he's not doing what we think he should do, man ends up cursing leaders and cursing God. It's a sad picture, isn't it? But you know what? It's a description of every nation that's existed on the face of the earth from the beginning of time. And we have to be honest, right? Isn't it a description of the good old USA in many ways that uh, people are discouraged and despairing because we've forgotten God? People are hungry and looking all kinds of ways, and there's a real cursing of our leaders. And ultimately, in our hearts, if we're honest, the cursing of God, as long as you're looking to life here for filling the needs of your heart and the desires of your heart, then you will be frustrated and you will see your leaders if at least, if not incompetent, evil. And so they become angry at God. And in verse 22, it says, then they will look to the earth. You've given up on God. He's not coming through for you. So you, you look at the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. This happened in Israel. It happened in Judah. It happened in Rome. It's happened to every major nation throughout history and it's happening to us because we have a nation as a nation have forgotten God. Oh, we talk about God, but it's this kind of God that needs to come through and make our lives better. And if he doesn't, we're angry. Why is there this kind of anger and darkness today, which there is this despair? Again, it's because we've forgotten God. We see it in the rising level of suicide you know, the greatest level of suicide is in the older generations as they feel that there's no hope. But it's increasing greatly among teens. Now, 
Suicide is the second leading cause of death among teens and 20-year-olds. Why? These are the ones that should have the most hope, right? But there's darkness and despair where people look. They've lost a sense of hope. All they see is darkness. So it's a discouraging picture. It's, it's a loop that's happened over and over again. It's something that man can in no way fix. Rather gloomy picture, isn't it? But in the midst of that, God speaks. You see, God speaks into the darkness. He enters the darkness. And in the next few verses, the beginning of chapter 9, 1 through 5, he gives us a stirring of hope because in the middle of this darkness, he's speaking to Israel and he says, Israel, there is hope. There is hope. Awaken hope in your heart. Don't despair. Because what your heart really longs for is out there. So he describes several things. I just want to highlight five different elements of this hope that he highlights in these next few verses. Verse 1 It's a really interesting verse where he says, out of this place in Galilee will come glory. Now, Galilee throughout Israel's history has been seen as a place that, you know, it's the backwater. It's the outback. Nothing good can come out of Galilee. And God says, it's in that place of rejection that I will move. It's where Jesus was raised, right? In Galilee. It's where he centered his ministry was in Galilee with his disciples. Out of Galilee comes glory. It's a reminder that even if our lives have been a mess, even if we've experienced a lot of rejection and hurt, that that's where God enters. That's where he comes and brings glory in that very place of pain and difficulty and hurt. He loves to do that. So it's a place of acceptance. Verse two, he describes light. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. He's he's describing it's utter darkness. It's night. And suddenly the dawn begins to come and it gets brighter and brighter. Everything's lit up. And he says, you're in darkness now, but I I'm bringing something that will bring light. Don't you long for the light? He says, don't you long for acceptance? Don't you long for being able to see reality and understand your life and what's going on and see what's really important and valuable? Don't you long for that? You see, I think God is trying through Isaiah to awaken in us hope that there can be something better. Verse three, what he awakens in us is this longing for joy. You'll multiply the nation. You'll increase their gladness. They'll be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. He uses two analogies there of of you've worked and worked and worked and planted. And finally, it's harvest day. And you've made it. And it's a time of joy. Or when you fought a great war and won a victory, and now you get to enjoy the spoils of the war. He says, think of that kind of joy. He says, I've got joy for you that's even greater than that. That's a longing of every heart, isn't it? He says, long for joy, long for freedom. Verse four, he talks about the oppression. You'll break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of the oppressor is at the battle of Midian. He refers to the battle of Midian where Gideon with 300 men defeated a massive army. And he says, God can do that easily. And he can bring freedom into your life. Whatever oppresses you, it might be a nation, 
But it might be your own sin, your own addictions, your own struggles, your own anger you can't deal with. He says, God wants you to have a longing for freedom. And then finally, verse 5, he wants us to be awakened in our longing for peace. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. In every Miss Universe pageant, someone has to say something like, what do you want, you know, for the world? World peace. (laughs) Even if they get asked some other question, right, that doesn't pertain to that. World peace. That has to be the answer. But isn't that really the longing of our hearts? Every time we read about some new war, some new difficulty in the world, it's, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking because we long for peace in our world and in our lives. Everyone wants it. And God says, I want you to have hope for that. I want you to long for a world in which everything that's used in war is thrown into the fire because it's not needed anymore. All the uniforms, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, don't need them anymore. Throw them in the fire. All the weapons, everything. We don't need any standing army. We don't need anything. Why? Because the world's at peace. You know, these are all the things we really long for as human beings, isn't it? Don't we long for these? So that we can live full, vibrant lives. And and if we look to the world for these things, oh, yeah, if we just get the right leader, then we can have peace. No. That always will end up in darkness and despair. So what God's saying is there is more than this world can offer. There is more. So where is that, that there is more? What is God's surprising provision? How would God step into the darkness of our world to really make a difference? Well, of course, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. As someone has well said, Jesus is everything God wants to say about himself. If you want to know about God, get to know Jesus. But one thing struck me as I was studying this is that the first thing God says about himself, the very first thing he wants us to know is he sends Jesus. The first word is what? Baby. Not king, not master, not lord, not judge. Baby. Why did God come as a baby? As a baby. Why is this significant? Why didn't he show up as something else, as a conquering king? What does he want us to know about himself by showing up as a baby? I want to show you some pictures. Think one's coming up? Picture, please. Oh, there we go. Now think about what this picture says to you, to your heart. What does a picture of a baby say to your heart? Why did God show up as a baby? What words come to mind? You know, maybe gentleness, love, joy, tenderness. Another one. (laughs) Okay, joy, right, for this one. (laughs) Another one. Doesn't it just draw your heart in? You see, God showed up as a baby because he wants our hearts 
to be drawn in, to want to be with him. My wife, Jeannie, when, you know, it doesn't matter where we are. We go to a restaurant, we go into some meeting, we go wherever. If there is a baby in the room, her radar knows it. She doesn't have to see it. It can be sleeping in a corner. She knows it's there in the, like a beeline. What, what is it about a baby that draws us? And why did God want to show up as a baby? How about this one? Oh. <laughs> What does this one say to you? (laughs) Rich says Jackson. Yeah, probably. (laughs) My parents would have said that, I'm sure. One more. Happens to be my grandson. One of the things that a baby says to us is hope, right? There's a future here. There is more. There's more coming And you get to watch this baby grow and see what life it might be. And as I stood here today with Josh up here and Jeremy up here, two of my sons, and, you know, you never know where they're going to be. But when they were born, there was hope. There's a future. There's something God has for them. So God woos us to himself by showing up as a baby. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? But the verse goes on to say, but he will reign. (laughs) He will reign as king. A child will be born to us and his son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And therefore, he will set up a kingdom alternative to the worldly kingdom. When Jesus came and was born and then lived and died and rose again, he established at that point the kingdom of God. It is here now as an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of the world. It's here. So the key for us then as Christians in a world in which we're trying to navigate this mess of a world and figure out how to live is is that we need to learn to live more and more as citizens of the kingdom of God and less and less as citizens of this world, right? But how do you do that? Well, there's really only one way, and that's get to know the Son, for who he really is. Get to know him better and better. And so he gives us, isn't this interesting, in this birth announcement, like every time you send out a birth announcement, a new baby's born, one of the first things, you might do length and weight and time of birth, but the most important thing is the name. This is the name we chose. This is the new life. And so God, in his excitement, the Father gives us four names. He says, know my son by these names. Let these be the names that help shape your view of my son. Know him as these. 700 years before he was born. They're worth meditating on. I'll just highlight some things about him. First, wonderful counselor. I mean, think about a bad counselor. The world has a lot of those. We get through the internet and all kinds of things, bad advice about what's important and what people are made of and what makes them valuable and how to get worth. And we get all kinds of garbage, bad advice out there. But a wonderful counselor is one in which what they tell you is always right. The world lies to us about what's best for us. 
But Jesus' true wisdom, listening to him, leads you to good decisions that will bring light and life and joy and all those things our heart longs for. Freedom. And so get to know him as your wonderful counselor. Look to him for wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He will give generously. But do we look to the world for wisdom or to him? Look to him for wisdom. He's mighty God, the father says. Mighty God. This Jesus, this baby, is actually mighty God. Not a weak, impotent God who can't deal with life. But he truly is sovereign Lord of the universe. Amen? That means everything, even suffering. I want to be very clear about this. Everything, even suffering, is from his hand. It's in his hands. People try to say, well, you know, God can't handle, you know, he's not strong enough to really stop suffering. And no, God is going to deal with evil and he will. He's but he's sovereignly using everything that happens in our lives, even the suffering for his greater purposes and for our good. And if I didn't believe God was sovereign, it would be horrible to face the difficulties of this world. But knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that Jesus is mighty God, it means that all our suffering has meaning. It all has purpose, whether we could see it or not. Nothing is random. Nothing is outside his control. We need to get to know Jesus as mighty God. Third, we need to get to know him as everlasting father. All of us were raised, if our father was even there, by a sinful parent, by a sinful father, who failed us in some ways, all of us, and some far worse than others. But what God's telling us is that Jesus is not an absent, selfish, abusive father. He is a loving father who is everlasting, who will never leave or forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. You don't see it in English, but in, in the Greek, there's five negatives. I will absolutely, certainly, for sure, never, ever, ever leave you. And I ain't never going to forsake you either. <laughs> we run out of negatives in English, don't we? <laughs> but we should be encouraged by that, that he is an everlasting father, that, that he's there and he will never leave us and we can always go to him and trust in him. Now, you may say, wait, I thought the son was the one that he's describing and this is the father. And Well, you know what? God is so big. This is what they sometimes call theologians, the confusion of the Trinity. Jesus is all these things. The Father is all these things. You know, they're one. They're one. But we ought to know him as the everlasting Father. He's bigger than we ever imagined. And then finally, Prince of Peace. The world can never find peace. We're getting further from it every day, right? No matter how hard we try, no matter all the efforts of mankind, we just keep messing it up. But Jesus' kingdom is one of peace where he reigns. He doesn't just promise peace. And never deliver like every human leader ever. He established the kingdom of peace. He is the prince, the Lord, the ruler of peace. And we can trust him for that. This kingdom will last forever. Verse seven says it'll go on forever and ever. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So 
if this alternative kingdom, that all these great things are here to meet the needs of our hearts so that we can know Him and walk with Him and trust Him as all these wonderful names, how do we live in this alternative kingdom and not just be caught up in this world? Well, that's, that's the whole process of discipleship, right? But let me give you three encouragements from this passage. Number one, give up. Give up on this world. Give up on this world's answers to the longings of your heart. Give up on, on relying on power and violence to get what you want, like the world does. And too many Christians have bought into, oh, if we just get the right person in power, if we just band together and, you know, push our agenda, that's totally relying on the world, and that is not the way the kingdom of God works, and it will never work. Give up on all that. It'll only lead you to darkness and despair. Secondly, pray. Oh, yeah, we've heard that. Pray. How are you going to get to know Jesus for who he really is? You've got to be in relationship with him. All of us can pray more. Pray without ceasing, we're told. Deepen your relationship with Jesus. Get to know him as he really is. As all these things in his birth announcement, make prayer central to your life. It's the key to entering this other kingdom and living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's how we live there. Pray. Pray together. Pray alone. Pray. Pray. And then third, trust and obey. (laughs) Follow this baby. Obey this baby. Trust this baby who's become Savior and Lord. He's the only path to what our heart longs for. Light, life, joy, freedom, peace. So trust him. That's our choice. End up cursing in darkness. Anybody you trust in the world will end up there. Or end up following the one who reigns forever in the expanding kingdom that will eventually take up the entire universe, who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's our choice. Pray with me. Father, it's so clear your excitement oozes out of this passage because you love your son so much. And you're so excited about what He came to do to bring us the life we all long for. So, Lord, as we walk through this Christmas season, may may we enter into the joy that you want us to share with you. And may we get to know Jesus for who he really is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.